Hey, if you have a Bible with you, uh, turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8. Um, a few years ago, quite a few years ago, I was uh, doing youth work with a bunch of uh, kids and almost we had about 60 kids involved with us, and I would say maybe 50 of them never went to church. And one day, it just, we were at a banquet because we had played in some athletic thing, and we'd won, and so we celebrated with the banquet. And I remember telling the kids, because I was very close to them, and I knew they weren't going to go to church, and they were never going to hear things from sermons. I said, if you're interested in God, then read Jesus. If you like Jesus, you'll like God. And if you don't like Jesus, you're not going to like God. So read Jesus and make up your mind. Okay? Uh, and so what I thought we would do is, is what the church has done for centuries is said basically two things. Who Jesus is, is who God is. He is God in the flesh. Who Jesus is, is who humanity was meant to be. So how do you live life as you're supposed to live it? You read Jesus. And then who is God? You read Jesus. He's both. So I thought we would just watch him because sometimes the best way to learn who someone is is watch what they do. So if you're in Luke 8 there with me, um, let me read to you a story that... Um, in fact, before we do this, let me encourage you. Uh, have you ever gone to church, listened to the sermon, pastor made a bunch of really cool points, but when you get home for dinner that day, you couldn't remember any of them? It's never happened. But not here. <laughs> but you remember the pastor's illustrations. That's because your greatest interface with reality is a story, namely your own. So when you hear someone like myself or a pastor tell a story, that'll often stick with you more because you create a mental movie in the back of your brain. And that's so native to you because you're, right now you're living in a movie, namely your own. And so it's so natural to do that. So when I read the Bible, it will create a movie in my mind if I will let it. Does that make sense? So I visualize these things as I read them. So if, as I read, watch the movie, okay? Uh, by the way, over 50% of the New Testament is like this, and the same thing with the Old. So here we go. It says, They sailed along to the region of the Gazarenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. And when Jesus stepped ashore... He was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. Not a great welcoming committee. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. Now, you can read the same story in Mark 5 and what Mark adds one little thing that's missing here when they got ashore 
this man who's buck naked starts running towards them. Now, I don't know about you, if I was one of the disciples, I'd have said, uh, back in the boat, back in the boat. <laughs> the naked man is coming. <laughs> and he's demon-possessed. And he's screaming. What do you want to do with me, son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus was commanding the evil spirit to come out of the man. And many times it seized him. And though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. You know, years ago, uh, one of my students who's now, um, as we speak, he's in Kenya. He's a missionary. And uh, he was an older student. We were friends. He was a good mechanic. I had old cars. We were very good friends. <laughs> And he called me one day and he said, uh, um, you need to help me. You're my Bible teacher, so you have to do this. And I says, well, what do you need? He says, my wife has met this girl who's demon-possessed. I've agreed to meet with her, so you're coming along. <laughs> and, you know, I'm the Bible teacher, so I had to go do that. We don't usually do these things. But anyway, uh, we... I found a room at APU that nobody knew I had a key to. You know, we met there, you know, and uh, it was an interesting evening. And when it says she, or he broke the chains, this woman, when the demon would take possession of her, had extraordinary strength. And those who have much more experience in this, like our friends in the third world and on down the line and often some some of our Pentecostal brothers, they deal so much with this. And they know this. These people are tremendously powerful. And so this man must have frightened them as he came towards them. And, and I love how Jesus speaks. This is the first time he speaks. Watch what he does. He says, what's your name? Not get away from me, get lost. What's your name? Legion, he replied, because many were the demons that had gone into him. And they, the demons, begged him repeatedly not to order them into the abyss. And a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And the demons begged Jesus to let them go into them, and he gave them permission. And when the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the country, in the country, the town and the countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it had told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured that all the people of the region of the Gennesarenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. And he got into the boat and left. Now, you're able to ask me some questions in a few minutes, so let me ask you some. Okay, fair's fair. Why did Jesus allow those pigs to die? 
did the demons trick him? You say, I've heard the demons want bodies and that Jesus tricked the demons. And they thundered down and heard and they all lost their bodies. Could be. But do you think this endured him to the region by him killing off a great deal of their economy? The last election was over the economy. So is Jesus stupid? Didn't he cut off an entire region when he let those pigs die? Does he not know how to do things well? Was it helpful for that demon-possessed man to see physically that they were gone from him? Yeah, it might have been. But at what cost? How dumb. One loser, demon-possessed man. A whole village not being able to be preached to. And then it gets weirder. Watch this. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. And Jesus said no. He sent him away. Now, I don't know about you, but there's times in my life where I've hurt so bad that I needed to be near God. And when you're near God, nothing can touch that. It's the best. And when I read the story, I'm, oh, I know exactly what you want to do. You've been living in hell all your life. You've been living in torture. And this man speaks and you're free. And he demonstrates it to you as you watch these, these herds just cascade into the lake. And you know you're now free. And you want to stay with the source of joy. And the source of joy says, no. You say, well, if Jesus is God, he doesn't seem to know how to do PR well at all. He seems to have an upside-down understanding of what's important. And he doesn't seem to be very nice either. Why didn't he let the guy go with him? One more verse. Jesus said to the man, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over the town how much Jesus had done for him. Now, I've been overseas as many of you have and I've visited a lot of our missionaries that are from our university. Um, I was in Armenia five different summers to teach over there. I've been to Russia with APU. And the more you talk to missionaries and the more you read the history of missions, you realize that us white Americans are pretty much inefficient over there. Very few people of any size and number become Christians if a white man goes and tells them about Jesus. You're rich. You have all they really want to do is you're American. They want your money. Who's the most effective missionaries overseas? The locals. You heard that one story where one missionary was there 18 years and had about 12 converts. And then this uh, African man converted it in 18 months. He converted 200,000 people. The most effective missionaries are locals. What did Jesus do? 
when he sent that demon-possessed man back. Oh, maybe he's not so dumb. <laughs> Let me share something else about Jesus. He doesn't want to make you codependent on one thing after you've been codependent on another. Or let me put it in a simpler way. The great desert fathers said the greatest way to grow spiritually always has to start with the word no. And until you can hear no, you can never grow. Because, see, we in our own minds think we're like God. We ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We know what's good and what's evil. And to become a Christian is to submit to God knowing what's good and what's evil. This demon-possessed man thought he knew what was good. And Jesus says, no, go preach. And maybe that's how he became a Christian. When we can hear the word no, maybe that's the beginning of our faith. Let me do one more real quickly. Go back over to chapter 7. Jesus is, by the way, working for Jesus must have been interesting. If you're one of the 12, you must have got up each morning and go, oh, what's the boss going to do today? It must have really been interesting. If you start putting yourself in, the, in, the, in, your, in these stories, you'll learn so much and then you'll, you'll, you'll actually be, you know, holy cow, look what he just did. You know? But anyway, chapter 7, verse 1, it says, When Jesus finished saying all these things in the hearings of the people, he entered Capernaum, and there was a centurion servant whom the master valued highly who was sick and about to die. And the centurion, the military officer of a foreign occupying military force that the Jews hated, heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He's humble enough to listen to the pleas of the Jewish elders. And he was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say, Lord, don't trouble yourself for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. And that is why I do not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I tell this one go, and he goes, and to that one come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now, I thought about this for a while, and sometimes it helps to know a little background and culture but in those days, if you were a Jew and you went under the eaves of a Gentile's roof, you were defiled. And to convert with Gentiles, especially a military officer, that would be like today asking when you go to Iraq to have dinner with a mullah and you're a captain in the United States Army. It's probably not going to happen. And so it seems like as Jesus agrees to come to this man's house and ruin his reputation and defile himself, the centurion, he knows Jewish culture. He's built their synagogue. He's on good terms. He likes the Jewish faith. He knows their customs. He sends another group of people out and he says to them, 
uh, to Jesus, don't come under my roof, I'm not worthy, he's starting to worry about Jesus' reputation. And then he does this thing, I'm an authority, you speak, and that's all you need. Don't ruin your reputation, just do it that way. And what's really interesting is what happens next. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. And I like that. That means some of you in this room could amaze God. Isn't that a fair deduction? And if you're not Christians, you might have the best chance at it. (laughs) This guy's not a believer. You say, well, I don't like that. Well, then, let me introduce you to the Mormon faith. I can give you the pamphlets afterwards. But if you want, if you want Jesus, this is what he's saying. And then here's what he goes on, and then it gets even worse. He was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I've not found such great faith even in Israel. In other words, I haven't found someone with this much faith in the entire Christian church. That's quite a compliment. By the way, when the men who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger, for they shall be filled. Was this centurion hungry? And what was he hungry for? The welfare of an employee. Jesus is an interesting person. And if we follow and look through that, he seems to have this very disturbing way of doing things. But uh, years and years ago, I was at Claremont Grad School, and I was reading all this religion, all this stuff, all this thing about Hebrew and Greek and Latin and you know French and German and all the theologians we read. And you just ha- I, sometimes I would read for six hours every Saturday morning just to keep up with the stuff I needed to read. And one day, I just, I'd had enough. And uh, my wife walked by, and I said, you know, religion is trash. And she always hears me say something like this and seems just to ignore me, uh, but listens, you know. uh, She's really good, actually. Uh, And I said, but this Jesus, this Jesus is all right. And then I went on reading, and she went on cleaning the house. I think this is the the center. This is the key. And to go back to him again and again, to read him again and again, is what I'd encourage you to do. In fact, uh, someone, when I was a young boy, I went forward at an altar call, and the pastor happened to be the guy that counseled me. And he said, Bruce, I want you to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then he got fired. (laughs) About, you know, about a year after that, or half a year after that, and I never got to talk to him again. So I didn't know what to read next, you know, because I loved this man, and he was gone. And so for 18 years, I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. <laughs> Start over, and you say, hello, did you, did you really? I said, yeah. And I've never been bored, and I don't think you will be either.
Yeah, I don't even know how to start. Um, and, and they'll tell you I, I usually are, don't have a problem finding words. Um, yeah, you know, uh, first service, uh, Dr. Belowian preached an entirely different sermon out of an entirely different section of Scripture. And the only reason I bring that up is because it really makes the point. Because when he said turn to Luke, I was like, oh, dude, Mark was awesome. We were doing Mark chapter 5. I'm like, Luke, we didn't, we didn't discuss two separate sermons. And yet, again, because the focus was Jesus, because the focus was who God is in Christ, I... I was engaged, and that's kind of what we talked about first service, is that um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start out with that question that was asked first service that I think was really um, good. I'll start out with that. How, how do you teach the scripture to, to kids, to teens, to college kids that you have um, when they don't even maybe accept the scripture as God's, God's word? Um. Kind of like I hinted at before in the sermon is um, it is natural for us to relate to stories. And since so much of the Bible is written in it, a lot of times, uh, especially when I talk with nonbelievers or I share my faith, is I just retell Bible stories. I try to know them well and not to blow, you know, blow it and say something that's wrong, but, but just to really share stories and, and over the years, um, I've spoken to a lot of non-Christian audiences, and it's, it's surprising how much power it has. In fact, I was in Armenia a few years ago, and they said, would you speak to these uh, uh, Orthodox kids who, weren't, uh, who didn't go to Protestant churches, didn't know the Bible at all? And it was kind of funny. Um, I said, well, how, much, how long do we speak? And they said, two hours. <laughs> I thought, this isn't America, <laughs> you know. And in an hour and 45 minutes... Um, I turned to the translator, because I don't speak Armenian, and I said, uh, well, this will be the last thing we're going to do. And she goes, why? And I said, well, it's, we've gone an hour and 45 minutes. She says, no one wants to stop. And what we were doing was just going through Scripture and letting it talk. Yeah. And the stories have their own power. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I would trust that. To, because why did Jesus tell stories? You know, the rumors are he's God. So he was pretty smart. So if he did it, maybe so should we. That's great. And you, you were saying also first service that it's not, it's not because, let's make that statement again about it. It's not because the Bible is dumbed down literature. That no. I, um, when, I, when I did my doctoral dissertation, I did it on the anger of God in the Old Testament and the anger of humans. And... Um, I went through the more philosophical-oriented material in the Old Testament, which is the Proverbs and some of the, the wisdom literature, and there's some tremendous definitions for my subject. But when I wanted to get something precise and very, very, what, uh, intellectually concise, then you have to go to the stories. The stories are fabulous ways of learning truth, and uh, they're not dumbing down stuff. It's actually... Uh, in some senses, a story makes you think more than someone telling you what something is. 
Does that make sense? A lot of times you're, you're told this, 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 the truth, where when you tell them a Bible story, they got to figure it out on their own. So. That's cool. That's great. Um, and uh, what, what, uh, what do you teach at Azusa? What are your classes there? Uh, I teach mostly Old Testament. And then, uh, like I said in the first service, I was given the class Life and Teachings of Jesus the first time I taught, and I needed the money and uh, never gave it back, even though I'm an Old Testamenter. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, and plus you'd read Matthew, Mark, and Luke and John yeah. many times, so that's, <laughs> you didn't mention that first service, so okay. Uh, that's cool. Um, here's, a, here's one, uh, I don't I'll throw you for a curve, which is just fantastic. Do people still get possessed by demons? How does that happen? What do they do to get possessed? I don't think the Bible tells us how it happens. Um, if you talk with people who play with the occult, they say it's always dangerous, dangerous to open the door. I've talked to some who have, and they've shared that with me. And that's what they think. I don't know. Uh, the Scripture doesn't necessarily say that. But, uh, yes, I do think it happens today. Um, what would probably be very helpful to realize, and I don't know if this would offend you or not, but uh, I spent some time talking to a Catholic priest once because the, the kids had seen a movie about that and they were asking questions and he and I were friends and he was a real, very, very deeply religious and uh, very born-again priest, just a very God-filled man. And uh, as we discussed things, he began to share what canon law teaches about demon possession and how priests do exorcisms and then he turned to the kids and he says, you know, we don't let any priest do an exorcism. We only let the holy ones do it because they knew who really knew God among them and didn't. Mm. And then he starts sharing things and as he shared stuff, I realized that's the insights I learned from my Protestant church and that when it comes to the daily life of trying to struggle to get free of sin and, and to grow in God that with the Catholics and the Protestants have a lot in common. Mm. It's often when you get up into the politics that the war starts. But uh, uh, when he started sharing with that, I began to realize this is so, so much of what I've learned and a lot of what the Protestants do. They just read the Bible and they follow it. But I do think it does happen today. And I think I saw that. I don't know how that person began. Well, I knew how that one girl began. She was actually raised in a witch coven. That's a good start. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's rule number one. <laughs> don't. Don't join a witch coven. Um, working at, uh, this is, goes back to the first question we asked last week, uh, the last uh, one, and then again this morning, uh, first service. Working at APU, the Bible can start to become a textbook. How do you continue to read the Bible for what it is and not a textbook? We talked about that uh, first service. Yeah, I, I shared in the earlier service. I do, uh, besides the studying I do, for my courses or what I'm working on, uh, I have daily devotions. I read the Bible as a layperson. I just have a, so much, and I, it's, I just do. In fact, one time I altered a lecture because of some stuff I was reading in my devotions. You know, <laughs> just, and I think that you always cool. have to go back and just read it yourself as a layperson. Otherwise, it can. And then I think the key to all of this is to stay in service. Because once you stop serving, then it can become... And the same thing for the APU kids. Once they, they, don't, they don't get off that campus and serve, they could become very ingrown. Hmm. 
then uh, that happened to a lot of my friends at Westmont, is where I went to undergrad. The kids that got off campus and served, uh, like you did, I saw the video earlier in this uh, first service of what you did for those houses. That's, that's, uh, that's not only a nice thing to do, it's absolutely necessary. That's cool. Um, you talked about Azusa uh, Pacific just as a school. Someone had asked whether it's a Christian school or not, and um, you had some great insight into kind of student life there or whatever. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, if you could share that. Um, I talked to the head of a seminary that's just started, and they invited me to the summer to go do a couple weeks for them, and we were talking, and they used to work for us, and they're very talented. They're great Bible teacher. It's, it's uh, Sarah Sumner. She's just drop-dead great teacher. And she said she came to APU because APU has an open enrollment policy, which means if you want to come to our nursing program or play ball for us or you want to do one of the programs we have that can actually get your degree in four years instead of seven like at a state school, um, we let you in whether you're a Christian or not. We're very upfront. We're a Christian school. You have to go to chapel. You have to take Bible um, you're invited to D groups. Uh, the vast majority of everybody there and staff and faculty are, are very committed Christians uh, and in quite a variety of types. But uh, we do allow non-Christians there. And I th- that actually attracted this now dean of a seminary because she says that allows us to, to be light to the world. And I've, I've had students. Uh, in fact, one student wrote a paper to me one time and I looked at it and I was, it was earlier in my career and I thought, oh, this is just trite. And I wrote, thank you for regurgitating your pastor's sermon instead of doing your own thinking. And uh, my wife saw that, and she goes, you can't write that. And I said, well, I think that. She goes, well, you're, don't do that. And so she was right again. Um, <laughs> and so I went through it, and I changed it, and I somehow, but, you know, and I finally changed all that, and I gave the paper back. And then five weeks later, this little girl says, the one who wrote the paper, she stands up, says, can I say something, professor, to the class? I said, well, Sure. She stands up and she says, I became a Christian three weeks ago. And I'm so glad. And I think part of it is the kindness of my professor. (laughs) 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 I think it. This is wife. Thank you, wife. (laughs) Thank you, Karen. So we never know, you know. And and we have some kids that, well, I have one kid. he's, He's so excited to hear the Bible. And that's because he walked away from God. And he's come back. And he just says, it all seems to work. Someone says something in chapel, and someone says something in my science class, and this meshes with this. And, and so that, that's, that's exciting. But we do have a lot of kids there that don't know the Lord, and we have a lot of kids that are like most church college kids. They're not very committed. And it's our goal that they move from that to another before they leave. We can't make them. You know, the faculty doesn't have a 357 on their side and put up their heads, you will love God, you know. Uh, we can't do that, but we invite them. We hope we try to model it, and then we go from there. Good. So they're they're not armed. No. Okay. Great. Okay. I just want to get that. I thought of it, but no. Um, uh, okay. Here's here's one that's interesting. Uh, in your studies, did Christ ever give an indication that he might have made a bad choice due to the state of his mind out uh, because of anger? I think that's a, I think that's. Outside of his, the state of his mind outside of anger or lesson. So I think somebody's texting, spell check, change the word. But did he ever make a mistake? 
not that I'm aware of, the more when I'm puzzled, and I often am, why do you do that? Then I've noticed over the years, if I'll wait, and sometimes I've waited for years, then I've had enough experiences in life, and then I realize, oh, wow, if I'd have known enough, I'd have realized what he was doing and how wise that was. Like, it threw me that he wouldn't let the guy on the boat with him. And then the more I thought about it, the more I, then I began to see, oh, this is so much wiser. Um, so no, I don't think that. In fact, if you trace all the places where he gets angry and then you read the entire Old Testament when it says about anger, which I did for my doctoral dissertation, you begin to realize that he and Yahweh are a perfect match. Yahweh gets mad only on two ways. If you commit idolatry, which is basically starting your own death, and if you hurt the weak, then the wrath of God burns. And Jesus gets angry when Christians are callous towards the needs of others. Remember that time that guy's sick and everybody goes, well, why are you helping him? And then Jesus looks around with white-hot anger, it says in Mark, because of their insensitivity to need. And then he gets mad in the temple because they were cheating people in the shadow of the God of justice and therefore hurting people's chance to know the truth. And so his displays of anger are matching God's. That's awesome. Yeah, that, that, and, and that goes, that really goes to what you're saying is that, you know, if you want, if you want to know God, know Jesus. Mm-hmm. And if you want to know how Jesus wants us to react once we know God, know Jesus. <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, the, it's the central, central point. That's ah, great. That's great. Go ahead if you want to add something to that. Um, I've watched over the years, uh, in fact, one time I was asked to go to a Bible study at a protest dock where they load trucks and uh, the, the owner was a Christian and um, he flew to L.A., and I used to work there, and he says, listen, he says, uh, since you and I were kids, we've known these guys, some of them 30 years. I'm a Christian. You're a Christian. They'll never go to church, so let's do a Bible study on the docks. He says, uh, I'll fly you at my, on my ticket from L.A. to Fresno, uh, and then he said, um, let's do that. Would you, what do you think? And I said, all right, so we did it on Thursday nights, and at 5 o'clock, I'd get picked up at El Monte Airport by a private plane I'd fly to Fresno and then I would sit in this room and half of them were Christians and half weren't so the first night I said okay oh by the way we all had Bibles because this guy went to Costco <laughs> and bought a bunch of them <laughs> and then they put the Christians in between the non-believers and then uh, we then I said turn to the book of Matthew and the non-Christians didn't even know what a Matthew was to them it could have been a you know a different type of lettuce uh, <laughs> So we got him into Matthew, and before we started, um, this one guy who my sons used to work for, they call him Dirty Mouth Mike, uh, he goes, why are we going to study a blankety-blank Jew? And I thought, that was an interesting question, <laughs> you know. When does the plane pick me up again? I've got to get out of here. <laughs> no, actually, the other owner, um, who they all loved, that's why they came to the study, that the owners were Christians and they loved their employees and the employees loved them back. And then the owner goes, his mother was Jewish, but his father was God. <laughs> and so that calmed Dirty Mouth Mike down for a moment. And uh, 
Then we started to read Matthew 9 and 10. No, no, 8 and 9. And when the study was over, uh, Mike just turned and he says, this Jesus is not who I thought he was. He says, I went to church at an Orthodox setting, but he says, I never learned anything. And he said, uh, you know who this Jesus is? He's the kind of guy who would go to a bar and start a fight, but know exactly why he started it. And the, the guy who booked me to come started laughing. He says, okay, I've never heard Jesus described that way. But. <laughs> and, and if you watch, Jesus was that way. This guy was totally intrigued. And then sometimes he would go knock on the boss's door and says, say, is he coming? Is he coming this week? Mm. And he wanted to come. He wanted to hear the word. And, and, and we just basically opened and read Jesus. Yeah, so. yeah I mean, that, that is just so... I hope everyone's as encouraged as I am because you know, oftentimes when you're dealing with whatever setting it is where there are non-believers, that I, and I was talking to some people after service, first service, you want to have so many of the answers, and yet if we just keep going back to stories about Jesus and allow the gospel to do its work, you know, we're not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God, that just the God, the gospel, um, and these stories about Jesus, um, it, it does most of the heavy lifting. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's not your faith or your religion. They are dealing with God himself. Yes. And then that they submit, they're not submitting to you or your point of view. They're submitting to God himself. Yes. <laughs> this question is awesome. And, and if the worship band would come up here, that'd be great. Just to save me. Okay. Be- yeah, this is good. Can you briefly, and I mean briefly, explain how God can be three people, the Trinity? So you've got, I don't know, seven, eight seconds. Uh, I don't, uh, that is a huge question. I don't know if you want to try to. All right. Let's try that one. Okay, good. <laughs> the early Christians found themselves naturally wanting to worship Jesus. It was natural. And they didn't understand it. They're all, most of the early ones were all Jews. They were monotheists. But they found it natural to worship him. And so the Trinity is basically a contradiction. So the early church would write liturgies, like, like we're going to, we, we sing things, and they would sing, we adore the mystery of God. And that's how they saw the Trinity. They didn't understand it. And then how I wrapped myself around it is not to understand how he can be infinite and finite simultaneously, which is a contradiction in terms, but he clearly is both, is I look at it pragmatically. He is fully God, and therefore I have a full vision of who God is, and he was fully man, and therefore... I have an understanding who God is or how I'm to act. And then once you make Jesus God, the Holy Spirit is kind of brought in as a trailer. Okay? And so basically your Trinity is... The Trinity came out of just their natural experience of worshiping Him. 